Our sermon text for today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 5, starting with verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. So when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for um, the chance to get together this morning and learn more about you. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. How's everybody today? Good? That's good. Good? Do what? So-so? All right. Well, hopefully that'll get better. Um, this past Tuesday evening, I got home from work, and uh, I wasn't feeling the best in the world. I just kind of felt bad. I was tired. It had been a really, really busy day. I had a headache, so I didn't feel like really doing much of anything. So I just kind of changed clothes, got into some comfy stuff, and laid down on the bed, and uh, just laid down for a little while, just trying to feel better, because I knew in the back of my mind, I need to be working on this sermon. So I, was, I knew that needed to be happening, but I just didn't feel like doing anything hardly. Uh, and I'm not sure how long I was down or how long I had kind of been there. I don't know if I dozed off or what. But uh, at some point, I know that uh, Krista, my wife, she came in and uh, she says that our neighbors, Carrie and Aaron, who uh, we're really good friends with, she said they're trying to get this snake that has gone up one of their downspout pipes. All right, so she's like, she's telling me this, and then she says, do you think you should go over there and help them get that snake? Now, I've been married for 17 years. I know what that means. That, that was worded like a question, but it was not a question. That was a statement saying, you need to get up and go over there and help them get this snake. Now, my initial response to that was, heck no, I ain't going over there and mess with no snake. I don't want no part of that. Um, so that was my initial response, and then I used everything in my heart and my mind that I could to justify with myself why I should not go over there and help get this snake out of this downspout. So finally, after I laid my selfishness aside and my bad feelings aside, um, I did go over there to, uh, to help them, but I was very reluctant in my, in my pursuit. Um, so I went over, I got around the corner to where they were on the opposite side of their house, so I had to go around their deck, and uh, I got over there to where they were, and that's when the, the real emotions started kicking in, all right? The, the initial emotion was anxiety. It's like, okay, here I am. I'm over here, I'm anxious, I'm apprehensive because we're dealing with this snake that's up this pipe. I have no idea what kind of snake it is, as if that really mattered, first of all. does not matter what kind of snake it was, but we didn't know what it was. And, uh, and we're trying to get him out in the open. He's where we can't see him and he's not bothering anybody. We're trying to get him out in the open. 
And uh, in order to do that, we finally had to unhook this pipe that was hooked to their downspout because we had tried everything. I mean, we tried putting water down it and everything just to try to get this thing to come out where we could where we could see it, and it was to no avail. Nothing was working. So we had to unhook it, and Aaron picked it up and was kind of shaking it. And it was like, we know this snake is in here, but it would not come out. And then we finally heard it move, and we are like, oh, here he comes. And then he came out. And my anxiety instantly turned to fear. Okay? It, it turned directly to fear, just pure seer, fear. Now, have you ever seen Aladdin, the movie Aladdin? Do you know the part towards the end of the movie when Jafar turns into the big King Cobra snake and he's there talking to everybody? That's exactly what that snake did. <laughs> All right, it came out and it reared up and it was like, I'm going to get you, sucker. And I was like, oh my gosh. So fear set in. That's not really what happened. But uh, <laughs> that joker was at least about three feet long. He was a he was a big snake to me. Uh, it could have been a little green snake, and I'd have been freaking out. But there he was. He had came out, and, and I instantly knew. I was like, okay, this thing needs to die. That he shot right up under their deck. I was like, really? Like, are you kidding? Of trying to get this snake where we could get to him. He moved one time. He went up under some leaves, and we were using a water hose to try to get him out and a leaf blower. I mean, it was all kind of stuff that we were, I'm telling you, it was quite the scene. And uh, fear came back a couple of times because he did make a move one time, and it looked like he was coming out after me, so I was kind of scared in that. But um, anyway, we, was, we were persistent. He was persistent. But um, like I say, after about an hour and a half, we, we finally got him out from under the deck using like a big beam off of a swing set. You know, we just shoved it up under there and kept moving it until we, until we got him out. But, and I could get that rake onto him, so I slammed that rake down on him and jerked him out from under the deck. That I had felt previously turned to rage. I was, I was some kind of mad at this snake, all right? And I was like, we are going to take him out. So Aaron's got like a little 1022 he's going to shoot him with. I'm like, no, man, don't try to shoot that thing. That's way too much. Just go get that shovel over there. So he went and grabbed a shovel, and he was like standing far away from it trying to hit it. And I'm like, dude, reared up at me. And I was, and I mean, the rage came out, y'all, I'm telling you. It was like, ah, at my hand. My rage. Anyway, I say all that to say that, um, that our emotions, the, the emotions that it played a part in how I reacted to things. It, it played a part in how I did. My, the emotions that, that are evoked in us um, do the same thing. They affect the, the decisions we make. They affect the things that we do or say the way we do or say them to one another, how we treat one another, um, all that stuff. All emotions have a tremendous, tremendous impact on who we are and what we do. The key is we have to keep those in check. We have to not let our emotions control us, but we control how our emotions affect us. So we don't, uh, we don't let our emotions overrun us and dictate what we do. Does that make sense? So over the past couple of weeks, we've continued working our way through uh, the book of Acts. And we've said that what we're filled with and what we ourselves with matters. Okay, what we allow ourselves to be filled with matters, and it does matter quite a bit. Um, what we're filled with is not something to just dismiss out of hand um, as unimportant, but rather it is something that we need to take very, very seriously. That's why we've looked at this particular theme that we've seen through this part of the book of Acts, and that does include our emotions, and that's this passage that we're looking at today. That's what I think we're um, what I think we're going to see. So we want to make sure we control our emotions, not that our emotions control us. So it's easy for us to say, "Well, that's just the way I am." You know, it's just the that's just the way I am. It's the way I was made. You know, whatever, and that's just that's just what it is. Um, it's just the way I deal with things or the way I handle this or that situation when I get in that moment or, or whatever. It's easy for us to do those kind of things. Um, what we have to do is think 
in such a way to help us keep our emotions under control. We have to think. It's like we have to do advanced decision-making almost. Um, that was one thing that Chip Ingram, a, a pastor that I used to listen to a lot from California, he said, and it just stuck with me, advanced decision-making. Like, if I get in this situation, I know my emotions are going to go here, but I'm going to do this because I know if I follow my emotions, it's going to be bad. It's, it's going to go away. I don't want it to go. And then sometimes we can go with our emotions, and it's good. But um, we want to keep those in check. We don't want our emotions to overtake us. We want to make sure that our emotions are driving us toward Jesus and his likeness and not away from him. And it can do one of the two. So if you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible, open up to the book of Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 12 to 26 this morning. We're going to try to unpack um, these verses a little bit and, and see what we can find out about emotion and how our emotions affect us and what, what they do. So as we, um, as we look at these verses, there are, I think there are going to be three that we're going to see in here. Two of them are kind of implicit. They're more implied emotions. It doesn't directly say this is what it was, but I think as we read it and we see it, we'll see those. Um, the other one is very explicit. I mean, it literally like says it just right, right out. Um, so we're going to look at all three of those. We'll get to each one. And um, the first emotion that I think we see is fear. The first one is fear. And it's one of the more uh, implicit emotions in this particular passage, but I do believe it's there. But before we get there, I want to just get us up to speed a little bit with, with what has happened. Um, and we see in verses 12 to 16, the first few verses that we've, that we've read there, that God is continuing to do some amazing stuff. I mean, he's continuing to do some really amazing things. These signs and wonders are being done through the apostles because uh, they're filled with the Spirit, and there's, he's just doing all this really, really amazing stuff through them. More and more people are coming to Christ. Um, multitudes, it says, and more than ever, it says, people are coming to the Lord. Um, uh, the Lord is just doing all these great things through the apostles. And it's beginning to stretch beyond just the believers and out. The public is recognizing it, and they're seeing it, and they're responding uh, to things even more so now. So their ministry is becoming even more public in nature. Sick people, demon-possessed people, are being brought into the streets so that as Peter just walked by, that his shadow might touch them and heal them. I mean, that is, like, phenomenal. He doesn't even have to physically touch them. His shadow just goes over them, and they're being healed. I mean, this is just amazing stuff of God that can only be explained as of God because nobody else could do that in any way. So he's doing these amazing, amazing works. And then we see in, um, let's see here, we see that, that is, that's happening for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're filled with the Spirit. Number two, they prayed for it. They had already prayed and asked for these things to continue happening. Look at what, uh, we back up into Acts chapter 4 really quick, verses 29 and 30. says that, and, and this is the, the apostles are praying. They're together and they're praying at this moment. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So what's happening is only because they've prayed for it. They've asked for this to happen. They, they have been praying, God, let this continue to happen, that your name would be made great, that Jesus' name would be made great. But even with that answered prayer, and even with the scores of people that are coming to Christ, there are some who won't come. There are some who are turning away. They're, they're not joining in. They're, they're separated from the apostles and the believers. Look at what um, Acts chapter 5, the very first part of verse 13 says. Very simply, it says, None of the rest dared join them. Why? Why would that be there? It's not clear who these people are. It doesn't say they're believers. It doesn't say they're non-believers. We're not, we're not told exactly who they are. I tend to lean towards their believers who are apprehensive about joining in with the festivities, let's say. Because they're gathered together, they're meeting at the temple, these great things are happening. They also have seen 
some folks being arrested, some different things going on that they don't like. So there's some people that are hesitant to join in. Nonetheless, whoever, whoever they are, whether they're believers, non-believers, does not take away from the fact that they don't want to join the apostles and the believers who are gathered there in Solomon's portico, it says. So they don't want to join in. And as I was reading, as I was studying, the consensus among the commentators is that there was a fear there. That there was a fear that was causing these people to not join in to what was going on. That there was something stopping them, and it was that they were afraid of something. Now, that fear could be any number of things. Uh, it could be a fear that comes from what they saw happen to Ananias and Sapphira that we talked about just last week, right? Two people came in, lied to God, struck dead. That, I think like Rick said, that's not a good church growth movement, right? That's not a good church growth model. Um, but they would see that. People have seen that. They've heard about that happening, and they're like, man, is that going to happen to me? I mean, I'm sure that's going through some folks' minds. And I think if that was done with any regularity, it would probably hinder things a whole lot more. But, um, but I can only think of that one instance where that happened. So fortunately, I don't think we're in danger of being struck dead. But it could, it could happen if we lie to God. Uh, there's also, it could be the fear of persecution, literally. Like we said just a minute ago, uh, some guys have been arrested already. You know, the, the arrests and the, uh, the persecution has already started uh, since Jesus' resurrection and um, since his death, burial, and resurrection. There has been some persecution that has already come. And uh, Jesus actually told them it was going to happen. So that may be what they're afraid of. It could be that they were afraid of uh, being ostracized by their families, you know, for joining in this movement, this way that everybody's talking about, this new life that everybody's talking about. Uh, it could be any number of things. We don't really know what it was that would, uh, that would cause them to be fearful and cause them to not want to join in with what the apostles were doing. The point of that is fear. Fear itself, just fear in general, can be very paralyzing. Like me with that snake. When that thing first showed itself, fear, I was stopped for a second. Like I had to process. I couldn't move. So fear in itself can be very paralyzing. It can stop us in our tracks. It can prevent us from doing uh, much of anything uh, if the level is high enough, right? Um, and it can come from anywhere. The fear can come from anywhere. It can come from past experience. It can come from uh, what you are afraid might happen, you know, anticipation of what might happen. Uh, it can come from interactions with people. You know, I've been hurt. They've said something to me before, whatever. Now I'm afraid. You know, I'm, I'm afraid to go do this or that because of what somebody said to me. Um, it, it could be any number of things. Not knowing what's going to happen. Uh, thoughts of losing someone or something dear to you. Any of those kind of things can strike fear in us and prevent us from doing what we are called to do or what we should do, even snakes. <laughs> but, uh, but that's not how God wants us to live. God does not want us to live in fear. Fear is like bondage for us. Fear is like it's something that just keeps us bound up and tight and we can't move and we can't do the things that we are supposed to do. Um, and I believe that fear is a direct result of the lack of trust in God. Lack of trust in Christ and who he is and what he's done. But through faith, through faith in Christ, there's freedom from any and all bondage. Not just sin, but fear and the things that go along with that. We're freed from all that stuff through uh, Christ. Anything that seeks to oppress us, to keep us down, uh, to keep us from moving towards Christ and moving with Christ, he can remove that. He removes that through what he has done. Um, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in uh, verse 7, Paul tells Timothy, he says, For God gives us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So he's like, the opposite of fear is love, power, and self-control. He doesn't want us to be fearful. He wants us to have power, love, and self-control. And then John, John, the Apostle John, wrote in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, he wrote this. He said, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
Fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So if we know, if we've experienced, if we understand that Jesus loves us and has done what he's done on our behalf, we have nothing to fear. We have no reason to fear at all. And the greatest thing, the greatest fear that anyone could have is what? Man, what's going to happen to me after this life is over? That is the greatest fear that anybody could have. What's going to happen? What, it's not persecution. It's not what other people think of us. It's not what may come of our lives. That greatest fear is literally what's going to happen when I leave this world. That can really paralyze people. That fear can paralyze people. But Jesus is taking care of that. Jesus has removed that fear from us. If we only trust in what he has done, who he is, and uh, the fact that he has fixed it for us. We repent, we trust in Jesus, in his atoning sacrifice on the cross, in the fact that he rose from the dead to give us life, the fact that he is sufficient to redeem us, to pay for all of our sins. Because that's really what the fear is. It's like, have I done enough good? Have I been good enough? Have I been right enough to, to be where God would say, yes, I care for you, I love you, because you've done these, this, this and that and the other thing? The answer to that is no, you can't. And we all know that. We know ourselves well enough to know, I'm never going to measure up. I'm just not going to. Fortunately, Jesus does it for us. He does it on our behalf, in our stead. He was perfect so that we can be seen as perfect. His blood, his righteousness, all these things pour over us. And that's what makes us right before God. So he's taken away the greatest fear we could ever have. If we trust him, if we believe in him, if we believe in what he's done and who he is, that fear is removed. So why do we fear about anything else? Why do we have any fear over anything else? So my question then is, are there areas in your life, are there areas where you may be filled with fear and you're allowing fear to drive you rather than you overcoming that through Christ? Are there areas where you need to surrender your fear to the Lord and trust Him with your whole heart in whatever that is? Are there those areas that you need to deal with the Lord on? The second emotion that I think we see is uh, very explicit. This is the one that's just out there right in front of us, and we see it mentioned of the, the high priest and the Sadducees in uh, verse number 17 of Acts chapter 5, which says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. They are filled with jealousy. The high priest and the Sadducees. So these men are the religious leaders. The high priest, the Sadducees, they're the, they're the religious leaders of the day. They were the ones that were in charge of all the goings-on in the temple. They were the ones that were in charge of everything that happened inside the temple walls, the sacrifices, the, uh, the giving, just everything. Anything that happened inside the temple, they were the ones in charge of it. They were the keepers of the law. They were the ones that made sure everybody kept the law. Uh, they were supposed to be the ones close to God and helping other people get close to God as well. They're the upper echelon of society. They're the, they're the high-class people uh, as well. They're the elite, the brightest and the best, so to speak. Um, they would have run with the high rollers, we would say. That, that's the people that, uh, that these guys are. They're not common people, I would say, like me. That, that's not who they, I know, Justin. <laughs> but, uh, but they were overcome with this feeling of jealousy and envy. But what were they jealous of? What, were they, what did they have to be jealous of? What was their motivation there? What was their reasoning uh, for being jealous? Number one, I think it was the apostles themselves. It was that group of apostles that they were jealous of because the apostles were uneducated men. They were common people. They were dudes from Galilee and Nazareth in these small towns, Bethsaida, 
these places that, and they were fishermen, they were tax collectors. They were not educated people. They were not high society people. They were just common individuals that Jesus had called and had given them the mission to do. They would be viewed as not fit. The apostles would be viewed as not fit to teach and do what the high priest and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, those guys, had done. So they were jealous of them. They were jealous of the fact that these guys who have no business teaching are teaching the people. They're leading the people. And they didn't like that. The second thing is the, uh, the message of the gospel. They were jealous over the message of the gospel, and that is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The fact that Jesus was who he said he was, the, the apostles were teaching that, that he had died on the cross, that it was their reasoning for killing him, that it was their fault that he was dead, that he was buried, and that he resurrected. The Sadducees really had a problem with this because they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the afterlife. So this is teaching this in general was a direct contradiction to what they believed the Bible taught. Now, they kind of held to the Torah, and that was pretty much it. But they did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in uh, life after death or any of those things. So everything that the apostles were teaching was in direct violation of what they taught. So for them to preach Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and then people were just flocking to it, that gave, them, that gave them heartburn. They did not like that. That made them jealous. And then I think the third thing that, um, that would have caused them to have that jealousy fill them up is the fact that these uneducated men were preaching and teaching a message that was in direct contradiction with what they believed, and it was absolutely blowing up. People were flocking to it. All kinds of folks, multitudes, multitudes. What we read in verses 12 to 16 says, and more than ever, people were being added to the church. More than ever. We're talking thousands and thousands of people coming and by leaps and bounds just growing the church like crazy. On like a daily basis, this is happening. So the combination of all those things, I think, is what filled these men with jealousy. Uh, everything about them, everything they stood for, everything they believed, their positions of authority, um, all that stuff was being challenged. Their clout was being removed from them um, right before their own eyes. And there was nothing they could do about it. Nothing they could do about it at that moment. Verse 18 says that, uh, that the apostles had been arrested. They had arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So they were trying to do something about it. They were trying to stop it. But it wasn't working. The Sadducees were trying to make a point and make an example out of the, uh, the apostles by putting them in the public prison. That was a place where it was just open. It was like everybody saw it. Everybody knew what was going on as to why they were being put in there. And they were trying to shame them to hope in, in hopes that it would cause the people to, to turn away from it as well. So they had this motive behind them, and they were trying to stop this movement by, um, by arresting the apostles, and then they were going to bring them back and question them the next day and just trying to make a fiasco. They had already done it once that we know, and they said, don't be teaching, don't be doing this. But the apostles kept on doing it. Um, so what I want to do right now, what I want to do right now is take a look, a little closer look scripturally at what the problem is with being filled with jealousy, with just the, the idea of being filled with jealousy and how that contradicts what Scripture teaches and what Jesus taught, who he was, and how he lived his life. So, number one, jealousy is not just wanting what someone else has. It's wanting them not to have it. Does that make sense? It's more than just, man, I really would like to have what they have. It's like, no, I want that. I deserve that. They don't deserve that. I should have it. They should not have it. That's what real jealousy is. It means that you love whatever you're jealous over more than you love God, more than you love others, more than you love anything. So this is in direct opposition with what Jesus taught. So Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31 says this. And these are just the two great commandments. And we can see how jealousy uh, is in direct contradiction with this. 
He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. That's the first commandment. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That is the complete opposite of what jealousy is. Loving God more than everything, with all your heart, with everything in you, loving him first, loving others as yourself. Have you ever been jealous of yourself? No? I don't think it's possible to be jealous of yourself. So if you're supposed to love others like you love yourself, how can you be jealous? That's what I'm saying. There's a direct contradiction in... Uh, in what jealousy is and what the scriptures teach us. Uh, Number two, jealousy is putting yourself and what you want above the good of others, just above the good of what other people are. When you're jealous, you want whatever that is at whatever expense, at whatever cost. It's I want that. I don't care what it costs anybody, what bad it does to anybody or anything. It's me and what I want. And that flies in the face of Jesus and what the Bible teaches all right, number one, Jesus was the model. He was the servant king, right? He was the king who came down to serve his people, which was kind of a contradiction in itself. It's, it's, a, it's an odd thing to think that the king would come down and serve the people, but that's what he did. Mark ten forty five says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jealousy, harboring jealousy and being filled with jealousy will not allow you to serve others. It's, it, it completely cuts it off. You cannot do it. So Jesus says, I've come to serve, not to be served, and we're to live that same way. We are to live as servants as well, servants of others. And then Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Jealousy stops that cold too. Because you don't care about other people. You cannot care about other people and what's going on in their life and looking to help them in any way and count them as better than yourself, looking out for their interests if you're jealous. It doesn't work. It can't work. It is in direct opposition with one another. So the problem then, the problem then with being filled with jealousy is that it's the complete opposite of being love-filled. So in our mission statement, right, we want to fill Andrew and the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. And we say that being love-filled, hope-filled, and faith, or faith-filled and hope-filled are the marks of a believer, of what it means to be a Christian. It's like the litmus test, right? We've, we've said that. Um, to be filled with jealousy completely removes being love-filled because you can't do it. Um, being love-filled means submitting your own interests for the interests of others. It means putting God and others ahead of yourself. It means living a life of gratitude toward God and generosity towards others. So you're looking, love means that you're looking for the betterment of others above yourself. When we said jealousy just a minute ago is, I want what I want, and I want you not to have it. Complete, direct opposites. So being love-filled does not look like being jealousy-filled in any way shape or form. So the question now is, how about us? Do we have areas of our life? Do we have things in our life that we feel that jealousy rise up and that we know we need to not do that? We need to not think that way. We need to not be that way. And we need to surrender those things to God and start thinking of him, loving him above everything and loving others as we love ourselves. Because jealousy prevents us from loving as we should. And the third emotion, the third emotion that I think we see is another one that's a bit more implicit, not quite as out there, um, but I think it's there. And here's the good news. Here's the good news. It's a positive one. All right? 
It's not on the negative side. It's not, you know, this kind of thing. It's a, it's a positive. It's a good emotion that we're going to look at here. Um, so we'll hit it really, really quickly. Uh, so after the jealousy of the high priest and the Sadducees has driven them to arrest the apostles and put them in the public prison, uh, during the course of the night, God sends an angel to get the disciples, the apostles, out of prison. All right, so they're released from prison. They're broken out, uh, basically. And they're ordered by this angel to go to the temple and continue to preach. So the very thing that you just got arrested for, go do. That's what the angel tells them to do. He says specifically, go teach the people the message of this life. And when they're talking about the, the life there, it's talking about the Christian life, talking about the, uh, the life of following Christ. Okay, so he says, go continue to do that. So basically, continue to make disciples. Go keep doing what you were doing. That's what the angel tells them to do. And what did the apostles do? What did the apostles do? Verse 21 says that they did what? They went to the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They did it. They did exactly what the angel told them to do. What they had already asked God to do in them, they're doing it. So what emotion would they be filled with that would cause them to do that? Boldness. They're filled with boldness. They're, they're going and doing the exact thing that just the day before they were arrested for. And they're going and doing that exact same thing. So these men are filled with boldness. They're filled with boldness because they had prayed for boldness back in chapter 4, verse 29, remember? We just saw that just a minute ago. They prayed for it. They asked God to fill them with boldness to speak his word. And then God answered that prayer. He answered it right then, actually, because in verse 31, it says that he filled them with the Holy Spirit. And they did exactly what they had prayed. They were filled with boldness to go and preach and teach and do what they were supposed to do or what they had asked to do. And I think that, I think that filling has just spilled over into everything that has happened since then. They just continue to be filled. They continue to be filled with the Spirit and boldness to do everything that they're doing. How else could it be explained what has happened? God has done all these things, all these great things through them. Again, so much so, He's working so much that a man's shadow is touching people and healing them. How else could that be explained? That is God doing it. If, if Rick were walking around and people being healed by his shadow, do you not think that would give us some boldness? Well, maybe. Maybe a little bit of that too. But I think if we knew it was of God, if we knew that it was of God, and if we saw God do these things, which we have, y'all, we have seen God do amazing things in our little three-year existence. We shouldn't be in this building. Literally, we should not be in this building. Andrew has, to my knowledge, never allowed a church plant. We saw God change a man's heart in the course of a planning board meeting. Right? Changed his mind, changed his heart. He said, and he literally said, I came in here with the intent to tell you no. But I changed. God changed his heart right there in front of us. We've seen similar things. Why are we not more bold? Should we not be more bold? And even if things didn't go that well, their boldness continued. The disciples, the, the apostles, they've been arrested. They got arrested for preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. Said, don't do it. They kept doing it because they said, we've got to obey God rather than men. That is, there's a boldness in them that is like unparalleled. Um, with everything that they had seen happening and everything that we have seen happen in our little existence, in our congregation as well, we should have that same boldness. And I hope that we do. I hope that we let the Holy Spirit fill us as well and that we have that same boldness, um, that boldness too. But the question is how? How do we do this? How does this happen? How do we keep fear from paralyzing us and not letting us do the things that we should do? How do we not let jealousy fill us and, uh, and make us into people we shouldn't be and being the opposite of love. Uh, how do we have this boldness? 
I think one thing, number one, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand and know that we have the power over our emotions. We are in control. Our emotions do not control us. We control what we do with them. I'm not going to say we can control our emotions necessarily, but we control what we do with them, how they affect us, what our behavior is afterwards, uh, or when those things rise up. We control those things. Through Jesus, through Jesus, who he is, what he's done, our emotions, our sin, all those things are subject to us, not the other way around. Okay? If we're subject to our emotions, then it's because we have surrendered our control to them rather than to God. Let me say this. Romans, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6, and I think it applies to emotions. He's talking about sin, but it applies to emotion too because emotion can cause us to sin. Uh, But he writes in verses 12 to 14, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So he's saying, you don't have to let it control you. Don't let it reign over you to make it obey what you want it to do. Don't do that. He says, do not present your members to sin. Don't present your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. He says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then he he ends it with, for sin shall not or will not have dominion over you. It's not going to have control over you since you are not under law but under grace. He's saying there, if you let your emotions control you, it's because you choose to. If you let yourself sin, if you sin, it's because you choose to. We don't sin by accident. We don't let our emotions control us by accident. We surrender ourselves to it. We allow it to happen. We don't have to do that. We've got everything in us. If we're believers, if we're followers of Jesus, you have everything in you to withstand those things, to fight against those things. Now, I'm not saying you're always going to win. I'm not saying it's always going to work out. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. That's who we are. The good thing is God's grace is greater than our sin. The other thing is we have to devote ourselves to God rather than devoting ourselves to the things of this world. So we have to devote ourselves to Him rather than to the things of the world. We have to seek after Him with everything in us, with everything we have in us, with more desire for Him than anything else in the world. We have to seek after Him more than our spouse, more than our kids, more than our career, more than anything that goes on in this life. We have to love God over everything. If we don't have that in order, then it's going to be even more of a fight. It's going to be even harder. And here's why I say that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus says this. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So everything that you need, everything that you need in this life, not necessarily everything you want, But everything you need, God is going to provide it. Other places in Scripture, he says, I know what you need before you even ask it. You don't have because you don't ask. But he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek God first above everything, and you'll have everything you need. Jealousy won't be a factor because you're going to know who you are. You're going to know that everything you need is met. 1 John 2, 15 says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And here's the warning. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if we find ourselves, that is a warning verse, that if we find ourselves longing after, wanting, desiring the things of this world just because they're there and because we want them, then we need a check. We need a spiritual check because we may not be believers to begin with. So we need to, we need to get that right because if, if we love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And then finally in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, and this is why I say that we have to love God above everything, spouse, parents, kids, career, whatever, is this verse right here. 
Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We have to love God above everything. Above everything on this planet. We cannot love the gift more than the giver. We can say it that way. I don't know if you've ever heard that said. And we can only do these things. This stuff is a fight. It's hard. It's not easy to do any of this. I'm not trying to pretend that it is. It's hard. It's a struggle. Um, But we have to constantly fill ourselves with the things of God in order to even have these things want to happen in our lives. Okay, so how do we do that? How do we, how do we foster this in our own heart and in our own life? Um, we have to spend time with God. We have to spend time with Jesus in any number of, of applications. That's alone. You have to spend time with Him alone. You have to spend time with Him with a group, like at church. I think we need to do all those things and spend time with Him. We need to spend time praying, reading Scripture, uh, more than just coming in here on a Sunday morning. It can't be just this hour and a half that we spend together on a Sunday morning, and that be sufficient. It's not. It's just not. So we need to do it both alone and with someone. So let me say it this way. Why, why do you think people get personal trainers? They get personal trainers because they cannot discipline themselves to do it on their own, right? If you want to lose weight, if you want to get in shape, whatever it is, Some people can, I'm saying, some people do have that discipline and they can do it on their own. Me, there is no way, Jack. I don't have the desire to. I don't want to do it bad enough to do it on my own. Some people do, I don't deny that. If I were to want to get in shape and do something like that, I gotta have a trainer. I gotta have somebody that's gonna push me, somebody that's gonna be there and somebody's gonna question me, what are you doing, why are you doing this? You're eating wrong, you're doing this wrong, You, you need to get on this track, you're doing good here. You know, you need somebody like that. We all need somebody like that. If we're going to get in spiritual shape, and if we're going to be able to love God above everything, we've got to have that person. We've got to have somebody there to help us. We're not meant to do it by ourselves. We need somebody that's going to hold us accountable. Somebody that's going to call us out when we're doing wrong, when, when that jealousy is rising up, when that fear is rising up. Somebody to help, say, point that out and say, look, dude, You're missing it. You're letting that take you over. You need to stop that. So you need somebody there to help you. And then when you fall, because you are, again, we're going to fall. Somebody there to help pick you up. You don't want to be alone when that happens. You want to have somebody there to help you. So that's that's what we all need. We all need that personal trainer, that that team of trainers um, to help keep us on the right track. Someone someone or a group of someones that's going to lovingly get in our face when we need it, that's going to pick us up when we fall, and who's going to be there for us when we need them to help us grow in Christ-likeness and to help keep those emotions under control, under keep those in check so that we don't uh, get overtaken by those. And like I said, it's hard. It's, it's making that choice and doing that on a daily basis, it's, uh, it's hard um, and sometimes it's, it takes more than daily. It's, it, sometimes it's an hourly thing. Sometimes it's a minute-by-minute minute thing. You know, it, it just is. It's a, it's a difficult thing. So the question is, do we fill ourselves with fear, jealousy, anger, sadness, inadequacy, or any host of other emotions that can bring us down? Or, or are we filled with the fruit of the Spirit? Are we filled with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Are we filled with those things instead? Because what we're filled with matters, and it will make a difference in who we are. So before we pray, um, before I pray, I want to give everybody just a, a, a minute to respond to how God may be speaking to you. I don't, I don't know if he is or not, but um, if he is, I want to give you a chance to, to respond, to talk with him, uh, share with him, whatever you need to do. So I want to give a minute there. Um, and as the host, just quietly, so I want to ask everybody to just bow your heads, close your eyes, do business with God. The praise team is going to come on up and, uh, and get ready to lead us in one last song. And after we give just a, a quiet minute, 
I will, uh, I will pray, and then we will sing together. Lord, I pray this morning that everyone in here, Lord, everyone that can hear the sound of my voice, Lord, that one, they are your children. I pray that, uh, that they are one of yours, that you have adopted them into your family. And Lord, if that's not the case, I pray that you would call them. I pray that you would draw them to yourself uh, right now. Lord, lay, a, uh, lay a, a burden on them to be a part of your family, Lord, that, uh, that they cannot resist. Lord, that they are loved. Lord, show them deep in their heart where they know they mess up, that uh, nothing is too messed up for you, Lord, and that Jesus took care of all of that, whatever it might be. <clears throat> Lord, whether we're filled with fear, filled with jealousy, whatever it might be, Lord, that you can take those things, that you want to take those things and rid us of them, free us of them, Lord. Strip us of that bondage that those things bring with them and any host of other emotions that can uh, burden us as well, Lord. I pray that you would remind each and every one of us to love you above everything because you deserve it. Lord, you're the creator of the world. You are the one that uh, spun the planets into existence, spun this earth into existence. It's all yours, everything. And Lord, you are holy and righteous and good, and we are so far from that. But remind us, Lord, that you have made a way, that you have made a way through your son Jesus for us to be righteous and seen as good and holy through him. So Lord, help us to not let our emotions overtake us. Help us to stay in control of our emotions, Lord. Lord, the, the emotions that evoke good things in us, like boldness, I pray that those would rise up out of and as a result of our love for you. And Lord, that those that are uh, hindrances to us, those things that will, that will draw us away from you and push us away from you, Lord, that, that you would help us to kill those, to mortify those things in our life and turn to you in everything that we need. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would just work and do as only you can do and that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.